0: Hello, ladies and gentlemen, this is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. In this audio, I am going to cover the whole first chapter of 2 Thessalonians from verse 1 to verse 12. I'm going to call it Judgment of the Lord's Coming. The letters to the Thessalonians are called Paul's eschatological letters. He talks about Jesus' coming, and we have a root-roaring controversy between futurist and preterists to deal with. Is it the Lord's Coming at the end of time, or is it the Lord's Coming in Judgment at AD 70? I mentioned that controversy in 1 Thessalonians. I decided, along with, I have to drop some names here because I'm a nobody, but other people who are big shots in the commentary community, people like Douglas Wilson, people like Adam Clark, they believe, and I believe with them, that 1 Thessalonians 4 refers to the second coming of Jesus, the final coming of Jesus because of those resurrected saints. That didn't happen in 8070. But then Paul switches to 8070 in chapter 5 for various reasons, which I delineated in the previous audio. That switch has to be argued because normally people just don't switch, but we can make a good argument that they did, that Paul did switch to 80 in 1 Corinthians 5, and he's still talking about 80 in 2 Thessalonians 1. So we start now with 2 Thessalonians 1, 1 and 2, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, and God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a standard salutation that Paul uses in most of his letters. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy are the same th- three people who were associated together in the greeting of the first letter to the Thessalonians. Before we go into what this verse and f- the following verses mean, let's give a brief introduction to the book of Second Thessalonians. I'm going to rely on Daniel Wallace, the famous Greek scholar at Dallas Theological Seminary. First of all, who wrote it? Now, the Pauline authorship of 2 Thessalonians is not nearly as widely accepted as with 1 Thessalonians. The liberals got on board with 1 Thessalonians, but no, they're going to deny 2 Thessalonians because the liberals, that's what they do. If they had a photograph of themselves presented to them, they would probably deny their own existence because that's what they love to do is deny everything. Well, as well as says, the external evidence as far as the authorship of 2 Thessalonians is strong, or even as strong, or even stronger than 1 Thessalonians. Well, let's look at, using internal evidence, five arguments that liberals use against Pauline authorship along with refutations. Normally, I don't go into this kind of stuff, but here it kind of gives you a a little introduction as to what's in the book. So, I'm going to go through it. First of all, the eschatological matters. According to critics of Paul's authorship, the Lord's return seems less eminent in the second letter as opposed to the first. Certain signs seem to precede the Lord's return in second Thessalonians, but these signs don't appear in First Thessalonians. Well, I don't know what signs they're talking about, but Wallace grants, hey, yeah, there are more signs that precede the Lord's return in second Thessalonians because, and this is why the enemies of Paul had turned thought of Jesus's return from joy into dread. And so Paul doesn't emphasize the imminence of Jesus' return as much. He says certain things have got to happen first. Well, I don't know what I think about those arguments one way or the other. What signs are we talking about? As we go through, if I see a sign in Second Thessalonians, I'll mention it. Aha, this is the so-called sign of Jesus' return. Here's another argument under the category of an eschatological difference. Paul doesn't include himself as one of the living saints who anticipate Jesus' return in 2 Thessalonians, but he did include himself as one of the living saints who anticipates Jesus' return in the first letter. Well, there's a short answer to that in 2 Thessalonians 1.7. Paul says this, And to reward with rest, Jesus is going to come to reward with rest you who are afflicted along with us. Well, there's the you and there's the us. He did include himself with the Thessalonians. 2nd 2 Thessalonians 2:1 2, now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him our that sounds like Paul and the Thessalonians so one of those inclusive passages you and us is in 1st Thessalonians and one of those inclusive passages our where Paul included himself with the Thessalonians is in 2nd Thessalonians so that's not even a good argument factually another of the things that the liberals say that prove in their mind, that Paul didn't write 2 Thessalonians are certain certain linguistic features. Some critics say the linguistic features in 2 Thessalonians show too much deviation from Paul's normal style. Well, the answer to that is most New Testament scholars see almost too much similarity. In fact, one of the arguments against Paul writing the second letter is that the letters are too similar, and why would Paul write a, repeat a letter so short? In time, so shortly, so close in time to one another, why would he repeat and say the same things over and over again? So that's going to be argument number five I'll get to in a minute. When argument number five directly contradicts argument number two, which says the linguistic features are too different in the letters. The liberals are cannibalizing themselves with their own arguments. And besides, the three short chapters, is that really enough to establish a pattern of one style and two short Chapters, I can write in different styles myself. I can write in academic style. I can write in polemic style. It's, you know you can write in different styles, the same guy. That's This is a stupid argument. Maybe there was a different amanuensis for the second letter to the second Thessalonians, and perhaps he had greater freedom than the amanuensis for the first letter. That could explain some of it, if if indeed such linguistic differences exist. Third argument liberals use, there's a change of tone between the first letter and the second letter. The second letter seems more formal than First Thessalonians, and the author seems more distant. Well, there could be a reason for that. The source of the change could be Paul's shock at seeing his readers so quickly shaken, shaken from feeling joy about the Lord's return to, oh my gosh, Jesus is going to come back and bad things are going to happen. But the real answer to this is, quote, the detection of tonal alterations is overly pedestrian and hardly worth mentioning in the first place tone. Yeah, you can really tell the tone. Tone difference looking at that. You see how foolish these liberals are trying to deny that Paul wrote the letter. Liberals detect a difference in the readership of the two letters. The letter to the 2nd Thessalonians is assumed to have a greater knowledge. The readers of that letter are assumed to have a greater knowledge of the Old Testament than one would expect of Gentiles, and clearly more knowledge of the Old Testament than what is expected of the audience in the first letter. So, the, the argument goes, therefore, Paul, must, or the author must have written to a different church, not the second Thessalonians, different people. Well, the answer to that is there were plenty of Gentiles who attended synagogue meetings, God-fearers in that time. Paul, also, Paul, on his first trip to Thessalonica, when he established the church in Acts 17, he could have taught the Christians their Old Testament terms. I'm sure he did. He was steeped in rabbinic doctrines. And as Wallace points out, the leaders of the Thessalonian church were most likely Jews. So that's, Paul assumes certain knowledge of the Old Testament when he writes to the Thessalonians because the Thessalonian church included Jews. It's not because he's writing to a whole different church. And as I mentioned an other, an earlier, the fifth argument that liberals like to use about the authorship of 2nd Thessalonians that it was somebody different than Paul is that the letters are too similar. Why would Paul repeat himself so quickly in two different letters, so it must have been a different person who wrote the letter. Here's some similar- similarities, there's eschatological themes, linguistic features, oh yeah, linguistic features, the probable dates about the same. Well, the answer to that is, well, similarities tend to prove the same authorship, not different authors, so the, arg- the liberals argued against themselves. Another reason that Paul wrote so quickly, one after the other, is because he had the same topic. To deal with because his enemies were arising in Thessalonica, so he repeated the topic again. The enemies had distorted Paul's teaching in the first letter, and so he had to answer the distortion. That's why he wrote similar teachings again. It's not because it's a different writer. And and notice what Paul did to the Corinthians. He wrote a series of letters, including first and second Corinthians, very close together in the mid fifties. They had roughly the same content. So the fact that Paul wrote similar letters close together does not prove that it was a different author that wrote the book. All right, so we're going to assume beyond reasonable cavil that Paul wrote the book of 2 Thessalonians. Now, when did he write it? This is not very controversial. Wallace has in the spring of summer of AD 50, but he's an outlier. Most conservative scholars say between 51 and 52, which is just a year later. This is according to Wikipedia and gotquestions.org. We'll take that as the date, 51 or 52. 1 Thessalonians was written in 51. Now, the occasion of the letter. Let me reconstruct what happened according to Daniel Wallace. First of all, Timothy is sent by Paul to Thessalonica to confirm their faith. That might have happened while he was in Athens, by the way. But at any rate, he sent them up there to to see how they're doing. Timothy is unknown to the Thessalonian believers by sight. And that's questionable, too. He could have been there on the first journey. But anyway, this is Wallace's reconstruction. Paul sends Timothy to the young flock at Thessalonica, probably used a different messenger than Timothy. And Wallace argues that since Timothy's name is mentioned in the salutation, this indicates that he was probably not the letter bearer. He did, Paul did not want to raise the suspicions of his enemies, and so he would have used an unknown letter carrier so his enemies would not realize what was happening when the letter came into town. Remember the situation at Thessalonica was sensitive. There had been a riot there, but it instigated by the Jews, and they attacked Jason where the apostles had been staying, Jason's house. And Jason was subject to incredible financial loss. He could have lost his whole house, his job, everything. And so Paul's trying to be careful about it. And so he sent an unknown message bearer to Thessalonia, this according to Wallace. Now, meanwhile, the enemies of Paul were infiltrating the church, these enemies were probably from the synagogue in Thessalonica, given the Jewish opposition. They notice what Paul does. He's sending letters to the church to check up on the church periodically. And of course, they're sitting there, and they, it's easy for them to sit amongst the believers, I guess, and hear these letters read. And they take note of the contents of the letter, and so they say, Aha, uh-huh. so he's talking about the Lord's return. Well, We're going to forge a letter and pretend that it's from Paul and the letter we write will subtly discredit Paul's eschatology. And that way, and in that fashion, we will dislodge the faith of the Thessalonians and maybe we'll get them to come back to the synagogue. They send this forged letter, Paul's enemies, send the forged letter to the Thessalonians by someone unknown by sight to the believers. Then Paul sends someone to check up on the Thessalonians and finds out that they are in despair about the Lord's coming. So then Paul wrote the second letter, to give them hope about the Lord's coming in judgment. So let's go to the purposes of the gospel. Excuse me, the purposes of the letter to the second Thessalonians. It was to correct doctrinal error. They thought that since the day, they thought the day of the Lord had already come, but where's Jesus? So since the day of the Lord had come, the Lord's return must take place soon. And where is he? And then, of course, the other purpose of the letter was to come in and, and encourage the Thessalonians in their perseverance and the faith. So we can say the theme of the letter is the coming of the Lord and our gathering together with him. Again, whether it's 87 or the end of the world, we'll have to talk about. Now, Paul associates Silas and Timothy with him in the salutation. As I mentioned earlier, they were mentioned in the salutation in 1 Thessalonians. And 2 Thessalonians was written a short time later, so Silas and Timothy are still at Corinth. I didn't mention 2 Thessalonians was written from Corinth, as it was 1 Thessalonians, majority view. Silas is someone that uh, was well-known in Thessalonica, as well as Timothy. Again, that sort of contradicts what Wallace speculates. I think Wallace's speculation that Timothy was not well-known in Thessalonica is not a majority view. Who is this Silas? Well, he was with Paul at the founding of the church at Thessalonica, some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas. Acts 17:14. then the brothers immediately sent Paul to go away by sea, but Silas and Timothy stayed on there. That was at Berea. Timothy's not exactly mentioned that he was at Thessalonica. It's just implied that he is. He could have not been there and then joined Paul and Silas and Timothy in Berea. I tell you, the movements of those three missionaries on the second journey, as recorded in Acts, and you piece it together with the letters that were written, is quite a task. Lots of options because we don't have all the information available to us. But it doesn't really matter. The point is that Silas was there at the founding of the church at Thessalonica. He's called in Acts 15.22 a chief man among the brethren, and he was called a prophet. He was one of the deputies who carried the decree of the Jerusalem council to Antioch. If you recall, he was the guy that went up there with another prophet from Jerusalem named Judas, if I remember correctly. And he went up and gave a long message to the brothers at Antioch. 1 Peter five twelve. Peter mentions him. I have written to you this brief letter through Silvanus. I know him to be a faithful brother, to encourage you. So whoever Peter was writing to, you got Silvanus to carry the letter. Silvanus is another word for Silas. As Grant, the commentator says, only in the two epistles to the Thessalonians does Paul include the names of Silas and Timothy. Only in First and Second Thessalonians does Paul refrain from designating himself as something. For example, an apostle, a servant of the Lord, or a prisoner of the Lord. He, he doesn't say that. He just says, here we are, guys. He's appealing to the Thessalonians on the same level as they are, as simple brethren. He writes familiarly as to faithful friends. Now, going back to Silas, I left out, let me give you a quote from John Gill about Silas. Silas was Paul's companion in all his journeys through Asia Minor and Greece. We know that, and this is what Gill says about Silas. Him and Timothy, the apostle, took with him into Macedonia, and they continued at Berea when the apostle went from thence to Athens. From this place, St. Paul sent for them to come to him speedily, and though it is not said that they came while he was at Athens, yet it is most probable that they did. This is Silas and Timothy came down to Athens to meet Paul, after which, having sent them to Thessalonica, he proceeded to Corinth, where they afterwards rejoined him, and from whence he wrote this epistle. Again, that's Gill's reconstruction of events. People disagree on exactly where Silas and Timothy were, but the, but wherever they were, they were constantly with Paul on that second journey. Silas was, too. Second Thessalonians 1, 3, We must always thank God for you, brothers. This is right, since your faith is flourishing, and the love each one of you has for one another is increasing. Now, the we that Paul is talking about here is Paul, Silas, and Timothy. We always thank God for you, brothers. And he says we must always thank God, as in we have to thank God. It's, it's an obligation for us. We are always bound to thank God for the Thessalonians. As Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown put it, They owed their thanks to God as a debt to the Thessalonians. They're so thankful for the way the Thessalonians are doing. That's powerful thanks there. The Thessalonians were the apple of God's eye. He says that this is right, giving thanks for the Thessalonians is right, since your faith is flourishing. So all was not bad news from Thessalonica, along with the eschatological error that Paul's going to have to deal with in in a minute. Their faith was flourishing besides that. Paul had probably heard from the Thessalonians since his first letter was written. He had heard of the eschatological era, but he also had learned of their flourishing faith. So with the bad, there is the good, which is sort of typical the way things are on this planet. Paul says, the love of each one of you has been increasing. The faith is flourishing and love is increasing. They're believing more and they're loving more. Paul's answer about the love must have been answered because he made a prayer in 1 Thessalonians 3.12. And may the Lord cause you to increase and overflow with love for one another and for everyone, just as we do for you. So Paul prayed that, and he says, I see it. You're loving one another, that's good. 2 Thessalonians 1.4, Therefore we ourselves boast about you among God's churches, about your endurance and faith, and all the persecutions and afflictions you endure. Now, Paul didn't boast about carnal things concerning the Thessalonians. He boasted about the spirituality of the Thessalonians, as Gil points out. Mainly, it's because they endured the persecutions that they were inflicting. Of course, those persecutions mainly came from the Jews, as we learn in Acts 17, where Luke describes the founding of the church at Thessalonica. We see there that it was the Jews that persecuted Paul. Acts 17.5, but the Jews became jealous and they brought together some scoundrels from the marketplace, formed a mob, and started a riot in the city. Attacking Jason's house, they searched for them to bring them out to the public assembly. So the mob looked for the apostles. They didn't find them in Jason's house, but they, they found Jason. Acts 17.13, but when the Jews from Thessalonica found out that God's message had been proclaimed by Paul at Berea, they came there too, agitating and disturbing the crowd. So the Jews even left Thessalonica and went to Berea. I just saw on Wikipedia, Berea is, is still there. It's, it's called Veria now, but it's still there, and it's about 40 miles from, uh, 40 kilometers from Thessalonica, which is about what, 20 something miles, 25 miles maybe. So it's close by. And the Jews followed, followed Paul and Silas right on into Berea. 1 Thessalonians 2:14 there Paul mentions this persecution from the Jews he says for you brothers you Thessalonians became imitators of God's churches in Christ Jesus that are in Judea since you have also suffered the same things from people of your own country just as they did from the Jews so the Jews in Judea persecuted the churches in Judea and the Jews in Thessalonica persecuted the church at Thessalonica so Paul is boasting about the second Thessalonians about the Thessalonians ability to to withstand and endure persecution. He says your endurance and faith, your belief, your trust, in all the persecutions and afflictions you endure. It was not easy to be a Christian back then. Just like in many places in the world today, it is not easy to be a Christian, as in Kami China. Now Paul says he's boasting about the Thessalonians among God's churches. Well, that would be the churches in Macedonia, which were Philippi and Berea, two churches, and in Achaia, that would be Corinth. And, of course, there might be other satellite churches that have been established by people within those churches that Paul didn't directly establish. But, at any rate, the Thessalonians have got a great reputation for faith, for love, and for endurance in persecution. First five of 2 Thessalonians 1, It is a clear evidence of God's righteous judgment that you will be counted worthy of God's kingdom, for which you also are suffering. What is the it that is a clear evidence of God's righteous judgments. What is the referent of it? Well, it could be the endurance of the Thessalonians is a clear evidence of God's righteous judgment. Adam Barnes says that. J.F. Jameson Fassett Brown says that's what it is. Barnes mentions that. It could be the persecutions that they were suffering is clear evidence of God's righteous judgment. And I think the idea behind this is since the devil and his minions always persecute the church, and since the Thessalonians were being persecuted, that must mean they're being persecuted by the devil. And since the devil is anti-God, the Thessalonians must be pro-God. And so, therefore, there's going to be righteous judgment executed by God on behalf of the Thessalonians. It could be that both endurance of the Thessalonians proves that they're going to be counted worthy of God's kingdom. The endurance of the persecution is clear evidence of God's righteous judgment that you will be counted worthy. In other words, God's going to declare, he's going to judge, hey, you Thessalonians are worthy because you put up with that persecution. Or it could be both the persecutions, the endurance of the Thessalonians, as well as the persecutions. God's going to say, you endured, therefore you're going to be counted worthy in my kingdom. And because you were persecuted, you're going to be counted worthy of my kingdom, both. Paul talks about righteous judgment. There will be justice somewhere later on. The wicked persecutors will suffer punishment and the suffering Christians will inherit a kingdom. And this is what is so hard because there's so much injustice done to the church of Jesus Christ throughout the centuries and throughout the world that it's really easy to say, how long, O Lord, before you're going to judge this? Well, it's never as soon as it is as we'd like it to be, at least not as soon as I'd like it to be. But at some point, there's going to be a weighing of the scale. there's going to be an evening of the scales, and judgment will be meted out for those who persecute the church. Now, when will this be? I said it's in the future. John Gill denies that it will be at the final judgment. He says at the time that the the persecutions come, the judgment will be meted out. And of course, that would mean more to the Thessalonians because they would want, if they have to wait to the final judgment, we know now that's over 2,000 years. But if it's as soon as they suffer the persecution, they know that God's righteous wrath will be on those who are persecuting them. That will make them feel a little bit better, I think. So I think that Gill is right that it's talking about. The righteous judgment coming at the time of the persecution, not at the end of the world. We go to 2 Thessalonians 1, 6 through 7. Since it is righteous, that's in the middle of a sentence. So let me pick up the first part of the sentence in verse 5. It is a clear evidence, your endurance and persecutions are clear evidence of God's righteous judgment. Since it is righteous, we go to verse 6. Since it is righteous for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to reward with rest you who are afflicted along with us. So their endurance and persecutions are clear evidence of God's righteous judgment and the reasons of God's righteous judgment is righteous. It is righteous for God to repay with affliction for those who afflict you. Now notice Paul is not in the least bit ashamed about the judgment of God that God is going to afflict those who afflict the Christians. As Barnes says, it is perfectly right and just that God punish the wicked. Nowhere does the scripture say we should feel sorry for the punishment that's coming upon the unjust. Nowhere. Paul didn't act like he was sorry about it. Now, for those who object to God's punishing the wicked, this verse says it is a just thing for God to do it. So how can we complain, as Adam Barnes puts it? You don't like God punishing the wicked? Human beings don't like punishment because we're all guilty, and so we shrink from that. Oh, God punishing sin? Oh, no, never happened to a good person like me. And that's what the typical unbeliever says. Human beings punish wicked all the time, even in this lackadaisical, latitudin, wussy-pussy age. Governments publish sinners all the time. They might not give just punishment. They might give life in prison rather than capital punishment. That would be totally just. But most people don't complain about that. Most people are happy to see criminals go into the hoose So now we're going to complain when God puts people into his spiritual prison? Hell, we're going to complain about that. Now Barnes makes the point that the wicked are often not punished in this world for the evil they do. And a lot of murderers get away with it. So justice is not served until the future world. But by the time the future world gets here... There's going to be an evening of the scales. There's going to be final justice. Now, Barnes is a futurist. He assumes that all Paul's talking about here is at the end of the world. I'm going to take a preterist position that, no, he's talking about 8070, But his point is still valid that we could get away with murder sometimes. I like to watch crime movies, and I love it when they get caught. But in these crime movies, they make the point that it's only a relatively small portion of murders that ever even get caught. When I discovered that, I was so disappointed. I thought the cops mostly got got 90% of the murderers. No, that's not so. But anybody that murders somebody, he might get away with it in this life, but in the next life, he's going to have hell to pay. Now, Paul says in verse 6, it is righteous for God to repay with affliction because of the affliction of the Christians, of the Thessalonians, and it's righteous for God to repay. But it's not always righteous for men to repay, as Gil points out. Now, we can't say it's never right to repay. Sometimes individuals have to act in place of the police or a magistrate. For example, if someone is about to shoot your wife and you can't get the police there in time, you might have to take him out. And so then you're repaying affliction with affliction. You're doing justice with justice. But that's a rare case. Generally, we let the magistrates repay vengeance, the the government, the laws, the police, the military, wreak righteous judgment on people's heads, and we wait for God to repay for the afflictions on us. At the end of the world. In fact, many times the church in persecuted situations don't have the aid of the police. We'll try to get the. Let's say somebody's persecuting the church in China. Yeah, go to the Chinese government and say, hey, we're being persecuted in the church, and what's the government going to do? They say, oh, you're meeting together in homes as a church. Well, guess what? You're now busted up. Paul says in verse 6, God is going to repay with affliction those who afflict you. Now, here's a great quote from that word master, John Gill, talking about affliction. Quote. Hereafter, such shall have indignation and wrath, tribulation and anguish. They shall be cast into outward darkness, into the lake of fire, and the hottest place in hell will be their portion, even devouring flames and everlasting burnings, and are what is designed by tribulations here. <laughs> so, it's not going to be pleasant. You know, people who say there's not a hell because they can't see it and because it's a spiritual thing, I have a what I think is a good answer to that. I say, okay, you don't believe in hell, but now do you believe in prison camps, or torture camps, or so you're reading the news, you know, these things are everywhere, all over the world. Horrible, horrible, horrible torturings. That happens, right? Well, you say, well, a, a good God would not allow hell to exist. Well, he allows hell to exist on earth because of our free will, because we're free to rebel against him and bring hell on ourselves. Same if there's hell on earth, there can be hell after earth too, or after life, I should say. And I don't think that is such a stretch to believe that. Now, of course, you could just go out of the way and say, go all the way and say, well, I don't believe God allowed hell on earth or after earth because I don't believe in God. Okay, so what do you believe in? Charles Darwin, well, evolution's doing a great thing, right? Oh, we're getting better and better all the time. We're evolving into a higher species. Yeah, right. Read the newspaper, my friends. How well is evolution treating you these days as we're hunkered down in the coronavirus? coronavirus pandemic. Now, Paul says that God's going to give the afflicted rest. And Barnes has got some great examples of this to make it sort of literary. The rest which a manual labor receives after a heavy day of heavy toil. The rest of a soldier after a long and perilous day's march. The rest like the calm repose of one racked with pain. Rest. Oh boy. Now, as I'm going, I'm going to take a preterist view of this, so I'm assuming that he's saying that uh, all these Jews who are afflicting you, they're not going to afflict you anymore, and you're going to have rest. They're not going to afflict you when the Jews are wiped out in 8070 in Jerusalem, and so that's going to be the end of the Jewish system, and they're going to leave you alone. And I haven't even mentioned this yet. For God to replay with a fiction, when does this happen? I think it happens at 8070. In verse 7, Paul says, This will take place at the revelation of the Lord Jesus from heaven with his powerful angels. Now, of course, there's two options for this. The futurist option is that it's coming at the second coming is when this rest will appear and the judgment, righteous judgment will happen. This is according to the commentator Grant and John Gill. Well, let me make some arguments on why the coming rest is for the judgment in eighty 70. First of all, the reward of rest takes place at the time of the revelation of Jesus. In verse 7, Paul says this, this repayment this, of the righteous God with affliction on the unjust, this will take place at the revelation of the Lord Jesus. Well, is that when the Thessalonians received rest? Well, they've been dead for over 2,000 years, so of course they didn't receive rest at the revelation of the Lord Jesus. But a lot of them would have been alive in AD 70. I mean, after all the letter was written in 50, that's just 20 years from now. A lot of them will be alive at the revelation of the Lord Jesus when he comes to Judge Jerusalem in AD 70, and then they're going to get rest from the persecution. It fits perfectly. The futurist view does not fit perfectly because they, the Thessalonians did not receive rest 2,000 years from the time that Paul wrote the letter. 2,000 plus years, we don't know when the final coming is yet. Now another argument in favor that this righteous judgment of God coming at the revelation of Jesus happened in AD 70 is the phrase flaming fire that we read a couple of verses later in 1 Thess- 2 Thessalonians 1.8. Paul says, "When he takes vengeance with flaming fire on those who don't know God and those who don't obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus, flaming fire, that 's exactly what happened to Jerusalem. It went up with flaming fire, It was burnt to the ground. So that fits 8070 very well. Now, having given you my arguments for 8070, let 's look and see what the Futurists say about the revelation, the coming of Jesus, and the revelation, the afflicting of the unjust, they say it happens at the second coming. Here are some arguments for that. First of all, Thessalonica was nowhere near Jerusalem. So if the punishment of the afflicted happens in Jerusalem and the Thessalonicans are in Thessalonica, which is a good ways away, why would they even care about judgment falling upon their enemies at Jerusalem? Well, the reason is, is because, I'm going to give you an answer to that. The reason is, is because it was Jews in Thessalonica who caused the persecution of, as I've already read, I'm going to read it again to drive my porn home, Acts 17:5. but the Jews became jealous. This is in Thessalonica at the founding of the church. But the Jews became jealous and they brought together some scoundrels from the marketplace, formed a mob and started a riot in the city. Attacking Jason's house, they searched for them to bring them out to the public assembly, searched for the apostles. Act 17, 8, the Jews stirred up the crowd and the city officials who heard these things. So it was Jews who were starting the persecution when in 80, 87 it happens and the city's burnt down. Guess who's not going to be around to persecute the Thessalonians anymore? Because that whole Jewish system, the, the rabbinic system had its head in Jerusalem and once it's wiped out, what are the synagogues going to do? What is anybody going to do? They don't have anybody supporting them anymore and they're going to be gone with the wind. So, that first argument of the futurist doesn't really hold, in my humble opinion, that Thessalonica is not near Jerusalem, so destruction on 80, on, in, on Jerusalem in 8070 has no relevance to the Thessalonicans. Yes, it did have relevance. Another argument the futurist might use is well, first Thessalonians was about the second coming, so why would Paul switch to the 8070 judgment coming in Second Thessalonians? Well, the answer to that is. Yes, indeed, First Thessalonians four is about second coming because Paul mentions the resurrection of the saints in connection with that coming in first Thessalonians four granted, however, Paul switches to eighty seventy in first Thessalonians five, and there's a lot of arguments for that, which I don't have time to go. Through here, but if you will listen to my audio on First Thessalonians five, I go through the arguments to see why Paul shifted. So, assuming that my arguments are correct, there that means the context of First Thessalonians is not entirely the first coming; it's only partially the first coming. And in fact, the immediate context, the last chapter that Paul wrote about was eighty seventy, and so it, it would be logical that he'd take up eighty seventy again in the first chapter of Second Thessalonians. I have changed my mind about not giving you the arguments about a switch from Second coming into the world coming in 1 Thessalonians 4 and the judgment coming in and 1 Thessalonians 5 why would Paul switch right in the middle without giving an indication well he did sort of give an indication because he said in 1 Thessalonians 4.18 at the end of the discussion of the final return of Jesus he said therefore encourage one another with these words bingo end of story Jesus is coming back the dead in Christ are going to be resurrected, and they're going to get, have that happen before their life. Saints get transformed, so therefore you don't have anything to worry about. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Bang, and then he goes to the next topic, which is eighty seventy. Another argument is that Paul said that, Brothers concerning the day of the Lord, you don't have anything. You don't need anybody to write you. He says that in chapter 5 of 1 Thessalonians. Well, if they didn't have anything that they needed to write, have written to them about the 87 coming, that would be true because of the Olivet Discourse. They would know all about the discourse. They didn't need anything for them to be written. However, if it was referring to the, if chapter 5 is referring to the end of time coming, they did need somebody to write to them because Paul had to straighten them out in chapter 4. So when Paul tells them in chapter 5 about the times of seasons, brothers, you do not need anything to be written to you, it's because it had already been written to them in the Olivet Discourse which had been relayed to them by Paul probably on the first visit when he founded Thessalonica in Acts chapter 17. So those are the basic arguments that says as a switch. So to recap, before we get lost in the woods here, we're talking about arguments that the Futurists have, that the righteous judgment of God to replay with affliction for those who afflict you, giving you rest, that will take place when? At the revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ. When is that revelation? All right, the Futurists say the revelation is at the end of the world. Because they say it can't be 8070 because the judgment on Jerusalem is not going to affect the Thessalonians, 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 which I replied, oh yes it would. Wipe the Jews out, stop the persecution in Thessalonians. So then the futurist goes to argument number two that it refers to the end of the world. The context of the first Thessalonian letter, is second coming. But I said no, I've just given you an argument why the context of the first Thessalonian letter is partially the second coming, chapter four, but chapter five is the 8070 judgment coming because Paul said you don't have anything, need anything to be written to you about that coming in chapter 5 because you already had it. Olivet Discourse. But you didn't have any teaching. I mean, of course, I'm assuming the Olivet Discourse is a preterist, on a Preterist interpretation, not one stone will be left on top of another stone. That happened in 8070, and so the Thessalonians already had proof of what was going to happen in '8770. They didn't need any more thing to be written to them, but they did about the final coming of Christ. Chapter four proves that they didn't understand about the resurrection of the dead and so forth. So now we go to the third argument that this revelation to afflict the afflictors, this judgment, this judgment that's coming upon the bad guys to give rest to the, to the Thessalonians, even though the Thessalonians aren't going to be living 2,000plus years later. The other argument is, where are the angels? Because it says that this revelation from God, this repayment by God with affliction on the afflictors will take place at the revelation of the Lord Jesus from heaven with his powerful angels. Oh, well, there were no angels in eighty seventy, So therefore, it must be the end of the world. So the argument goes. Well, let me ask you a question. At Jesus came to Mount Sinai with angels. Where were the angels? Could you see him? Deuteronomy 33.2, he said, The Lord came from Sinai and appeared to them from Seir. Seir is just another word for the mountain range where Mount Sinai was. The Lord came. Notice the word came, as in coming. The Lord came from Sinai and appeared to them from Seir. He shone on them from Mount Paran and came with 10,000 holy ones, i.e. angels. Came with 10,000 angels with lightning from his right hand for them. Now, did anybody see those angels? Well, probably not. Why? Because angels are invisible beings in their normal state. Angels always come with God to judge the world. Now, we can argue over whether it's eighty seventy or the end of the world, and I, I, but I'm just going to give you the scriptures without make, taking a stand either way to show that angels come with judgment. Adam Clark says, "Quote The coming of God to judge the world is scarcely ever spoken of in the sacred writings without mentioning the holy angels who are to accompany him and to form his court or retinue. Matthew twenty five thirty one when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him. Matthew sixteen twenty seven, for the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father. Mark eight thirty eight, for whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his father with the holy angels. So Jesus came with angels in eighty seventy. Assuming that those verses reply to eighty seventy, I don't have time to get into that. But let's go back to right here in verse seven of Thessalonians one. This will take place at the revelation of the Lord Jesus from heaven with his powerful angels. We'll assume that's eighty seventy, because whenever Jesus comes to judge, his angels are with him, just like at Mount Sinai, where well, you couldn't see him there either. We go now to Second Thessalonians chapter one verses eight to nine. Taking vengeance. Again, I'm in the middle of a sentence, so let's go back and pick up the subject of that sentence. Let's read verse 7. This will take place at the revelation of the Lord Jesus from heaven with his powerful angels, taking vengeance. In other words, Jesus is going to be taking vengeance. These are days of vengeance, as Luke called the Olivet Discourse. The days of vengeance, eighty seventy, taking vengeance with flaming fire on those who don't know God and on those who don't obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Flaming fire is not mentioned in First Thessalonians 4 where Jesus is talking about the revelation of Jesus at the end of time for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout with the archangel's voice for the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first no flaming fire and perhaps that might be because Jerusalem is singled out for flaming fire here in, in Second Thessalonians 1 because Paul is now talking about eighty seventy. maybe I'm, I wouldn't stand too hard on that but at any rate what is this flaming fire now here's some Interesting speculations. Flashes of lightning. Jesus will be glowing with a fiery light. Fiery angels. No, it just means Jerusalem's burning up. In my opinion, that's what he's talking about. Flaming fire on those who don't know God. Those who were in Jerusalem and persecuting the Messiah and getting judged for it. They're going to burn up because that's what happened to the city. They burnt these people in Jerusalem will pay the penalty of eternal destruction. Now they're going to basically they're going to be in hell forever. Here's what John Gill says about this quote: Sin being committed, talking talk about the word eternal, the punishment being eternal. Quote: Sin being committed against an infinite and eternal being will be infinite in its duration. Nor will it cease to be in the persons punished, who will not be in the least reformed or purged from sin by punishment, which will make the continuance of it just and necessary. These people who think you go to purgatory, you get suffered a little bit, and then you say, oh, okay, I, I, I've been purged of all my sins, now I'm happy now, I repent, and then I get to heaven, oh, it ain't going to be that way. People are in hell want to be in hell, they don't want to be around God, and so they're going to live out the consequences of their desires. They're foolish desires, in my humble opinion, but that's the way rebellious sinners are. They're evil, they're like the poison of asp under one's tongue. Now, these who are going to pay the penalty of eternal destruction are said to be destroyed, Destruction. Now, some people say that that means annihilation. They're going to be destroyed in the sense of annihilated, so they're not going to have eternal consciousness of their punishment. The Greek word there is olethron, olethron or olethron, I guess to pronounce it right. It means destruction. It does not mean annihilation, as Barnes says. Here's his quote. The soul is destroyed as to the great purposes of its being, its enjoyment, dignity, honor, holiness, happiness. It will not be annihilated but will live and linger on in destruction. It seems difficult to conceive how anyone can profess to hold that this passage is a part of the word of God and yet deny the doctrine of future eternal punishment. It would not be possible to state that doctrine in clearer language than this. It's like a house or an old stone castle. There's a war, the house gets burnt down or the castle gets destroyed. It's still there, maybe even a thousand years later, but it's just a heap of ruins. But it still exists. The soul is ruined, just as sin ruins people's souls here on earth. I just saw a fight in a, on a video in a, in a shopping mall in Atlanta and another one in Hawaii. People yelling the most vile and nasty curses at one another and wrestling with one another. These are women poking each other in the face, screaming and hollering. And I said, you know, they're in existence, but they're ruined. They're, their souls are destroyed. They're so full of hate and bitterness, and anger, that only the grace of God can ever save him. It's likewise, only the grace of God can save people from hell. And I realize in today's world that hell is a dirty word. We can't talk about the place of eternal eschatological punishment, because that would mean we don't love people. And of course, I give you the standard response to that. Well, if you're about to drive over a cliff, it's only love to stand in front of the car and yell, Stop! Don't drive over the cliff, you idiot! Because you're going to destroy yourself. But... Now notice that this penalty of eternal destruction is a destruction from the Lord's presence or away from the Lord's presence. That's one of the worst aspects of hell, in my humble opinion, is being absent from God. Especially since your only companions in hell will be other nasty human beings. Think of the nasty human beings that you know in your life and think about waking up every day in there right next to you. Yelling at you, cursing at you, not to mention the demons that are down there. Here's what Adam Clark says about hell. Never to see the face of God throughout eternity is a heart-rending, soul-appalling thought, And and to be banished from the glory of his power, that power, the glory of which is peculiarly manifested in saving the lost and glorifying the faithful, is what cannot be reflected on without confusion and dismay. But this must be the lot of all who acknowledge not God and obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Here's what Jameson Fawcett and Brown talk about not being in the presence of God forever. Quote, the law of evil left to its unrestricted working without one counteracting influence of the presence of God. Evil will produce more evil. It won't produce enough evil to destroy you, but it'll produce enough evil to make the people's lives in hell miserable. 2 Thessalonians one ten. In that day when he comes to be glorified with his saints. Again, that's in the middle of a sentence. So let's go back and pick up verse 9. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction from the Lord's presence and from his glorious strength in that day when he comes to be glorified by his saints. And I'm assuming that day is 8070, When Jesus comes to be glorified by his saints and be admired by all those who have believed. Now we have a translation problem here. Homer Christian Study Bible says that Jesus comes to be glorified by his saints. That means that when the saints endure the persecution that will give glory to Jesus because they endured because of Jesus's faithfulness. Well, that's fine. But these Greek prepositions are tricky. The English Standard Version, the ESV, says Jesus comes on that day when Jesus comes to be glorified in his saints. Now, if the ESV's translation is accurate, then that means God condescends to share his glory with his people, because when the saints get glorified by surviving this persecution, well, then Jesus is going to get, or God is going to get glorified also. The he that's being glorified is actually the Lord, the Father. I think if we go back to verse 9, those Will pay the penalty of eternal destruction from the Lord's presence. That's probably, well, it could be God, it could be Jesus. I'm not sure who it is, but he, well, whoever it is, whichever person in the Trinity it is, he's going to be glorified in his saints. So when the saints are glorified, he's going to be glorified. So we get to share his glory according to the ESV translations. How will the saints be glorified? According to Barnes, by the numbers that will be redeemed. Now he's a futurist now, so he's talking about the end of the world, but. It works either way. God, Jesus is going to be glorified at the Jesus and the church, the Thessalonians will be glorified at Jesus' coming, by the numbers of people that will be redeemed, by the way that they've endured their trials, by the triumphs the saints have accomplished on the earth, by the praises and songs of the saints. So Barnes is kind of moving from the Thessalonians to all of the saints. Remember, he's a futurist. He says this, quote, "...this appropriate honor of Christ and the Church has never yet been fully seen. His people on earth have in general most imperfectly reflected His image. They have in general been comparatively few in number and scattered upon the earth. They have been poor and despised. Often they have been persecuted and regarded as, as the filth of the world and the offscouring of all things. The honors of this world have been withheld from them. The great have regarded it as no honor to be identified with the Church. And the proud have been ashamed to be enrolled among the followers of the Lamb. In this last day, all this will be changed. Now, Barnes is right about how the church is treated, especially today in America, for example. We're laughed out, demonized, marginalized, have our churches shut down because we want to have a worship service in the midst of the coronavirus and a drive-in theater with a car window shut and parked six feet apart. Well, that's not good enough. We've got to take the license numbers and shut it down. Well, let me point out that even though Barnes gives a great story, and what he says is true about how we're going to be glorified at the second coming, we can also be glorified. Or the Thessalonians could be glorified, and Jesus could be glorified by the judgment on Jerusalem in 8070, and Jesus could be glorified by that judgment in 8070. Why? Because they will still be there. They'll still be evangelizing. They'll still be spreading the gospel of Jesus. They will have endured their trials. They will triumph. They will praise. They will sing. It works either way. So we're going to assume 8070. And that day, 8070, when he comes, Jesus comes to be glorified in his saints and to be admired by all those who believe. Of course, Jesus is going to be admired. Look what he did. He wiped out this incredible, huge system that had been there for centuries. Jerusalem was one of the wonders of the ancient world. Not one of the seven wonders, but it was a wonder of the ancient world. Beautiful city smoking rubble, and it was predicted by Jesus. Everything Jesus said in the Olivet Discourse came to pass on a preterist interpretation. Now, Bars points out that this admiration about Jesus, it could be Jesus is admired directly. As I said, Barnes doesn't say this, but I say this. Jesus' entirely accurate prediction of eighty seventy and in the Olivet Discourse would make Jesus admired, as I just said. But also Jesus could be admired indirectly because of the wonderful things he had done in his saints as the church endured with, in the midst of all that persecution. Paul tells the Thessalonians, "...because our testimony among you was believed." In other words, the Thessalonians believe, therefore they glorify. Again, I say, how does all this refer to the end of the world? How does the Thessalonians enduring all that persecution bring glory to Jesus? They're going to be dead for 2,000 years. Nobody knows where Thessalonica is hardly anymore. I mean, it's a city. It's still there. But the church at Thessalonica, who knows anything about it? They were glorified when they survived it back in 8070. We go now to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 11. Paul continues, and in view of this, in view of what? In view of the fact that his testimony about the Thessalonians receiving just deliverance from those who afflicted them, from the Thessalonians sharing in the glory of Christ when Christ comes in 8070 to judge the persecutors of the church, the fact that the Thessalonians as believers admired what Jesus had done, all of this mentioned in verse 10 and and, and in verses previous. And in view of all that, we always pray for you that our God will consider you worthy of his calling and will by his power fulfill every desire for goodness and the work of faith. God talks about his power that he's going to use. Of course, God is going to consider them worthy of his calling when they endure the persecution. And then, because of his power, remember, God is love. But if he didn't have any power to do works of love for us, for us, his love would be useless. To fulfill every desire for goodness, whose desire? God's desire for the Thessalonians' goodness, Barnes says. Or it could be the Thessalonians' desire for their own goodness. But at any rate... God's power will fulfill every desire, all of his desires for the goodness that he's designed, or he will fulfill every desire that the Thessalonians have for their own goodness. And he will fulfill every desire for goodness and the work of faith. He'll desire, or the Thessalonians will desire good, and they will desire the work that comes from belief. Now that desire for goodness, as I said, it could be... Well, I was talking about desire, it could be God's desire or the Thessalonians' Thessalonians desire, but also goodness can either belong to God or to the Thessalonians. Jameson Fawcett Brown says it's the desire for the Thessalonians' goodness. We ought to translate this way. God will, by his power, fulfill his every gracious purpose of goodness on your part, that is, fully perfecting you all goodness. Okay, he, he will make the Thessalonians good. He will perfect their goodness. On the other hand, John Gill and Adam Clark say that it refers to God's goodness. God will fulfill his goodness by helping the Thessalonians persevere in this persecution from the Jews. I found a translation that backs up Gill and Clark on this second Thessalonians 1.11. This is the Mace New Testament translation. In the early 1700s, it was translated. Therefore, we continually pray that our God would by his power affect all the gracious designs of his goodness and accomplish the work of faith in you. Well, whether it's the Thessalonians' goodness or God's goodness, all goodness comes from God anyway, anyway either directly or indirectly. And so God, Paul prays that that, would be for, that 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 his desire and the Thessalonians' desire for their goodness and God's goodness will be fulfilled. Let's just take it all. God's desires and Thessalonians' desires, and their desire for the work of faith. The work of faith is translated in the New Testament as the work of faith in you, subjective faith. We finish up the chapter now in verse 12, 1 Thessalonians 1. So that the name of our Lord Jesus will be glorified by you and you by him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now notice that this glorification works two ways. Jesus will be glorified by the Thessalonians and the Thessalonians will be glorified by Jesus. They were in a mutual glorification society. Jameson Fawcett Brown puts it this way. They were engaged in, quote-unquote, reciprocal glorification. When Jesus gets glory, he gives some glory to the Thessalonians. And when Thessalonians get glory, he gives glory to Jesus. How do we know that? Because it says, let me read it again, The name of our Lord Jesus will be glorified by you, and you by him. And you Thessalonians will be glorified by him. To put it in a long fashion there. Mutual glorification. It makes sense. Jesus is the head. If the head gets glory, doesn't the body get glory too? And if the body gets glory, doesn't the head get glory? Kind of an exciting thing to think about. Now, when he says, The name of our Lord Jesus Christ will be glorified by you, the name, of course, stands for the person. It's not just a label. We don't see Jesus' name on a name tag and said, Oh, give glory to the name tag. No, it means the person. That's the way they said things back then. It means the whole person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul finishes up just like he started with. According to the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, it's all unmerited favor. In verse 1, he said, grace to you and peace. And he finishes up in verse 12 in chapter 1. It's all going to be done by the grace of God. The grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ is going to glorify you Thessalonians and going to cause Jesus to be glorified also by the grace of God. This is good news. So most of 1 Thessalonians and starting in 2 Thessalonians is a happy letter, a feel-good letter. A letter of congratulations on the Thessalonians' spiritual perseverance in the midst of affliction and their spiritual growth. They're abounding in love. They're abounding in faith. And so we finish chapter 1. In our next audio, we'll take up 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1-12, through 12, which is the passage about the man of sin. The hardest, by many people's calculations or estimation, the hardest passage of Scripture in the New Testament. Have no fear, I'm going to give you what I think is a reasonable interpretation of that passage as hard as it might be. I might be wrong, but I'm going to give it a shot. So stay tuned for that audio. Hope you enjoyed this one.